0: All right, we are live, Larry. Uh, great, thank got you. Got it working, so we should be good to go. Uh, apologies to our viewers who are waiting and expecting us to go live right on the dot at 8 Eastern. We're just a, a minute later, so. Yeah. Um, but, but but I'm glad we got it figured out. We're, we're dealing with new technology to our viewers slash listeners, so that's always a precarious
1: proposition uh, to begin with. But here we are. Absolutely. And I know nothing of technology, so my, I'm totally in your hands. Well, uh, well, we'll see how this goes. You know, that's we've got the toughest part behind us, I think, with getting things started.
0: But hopefully uh, hopefully it continues well. How are you, Larry? How are things in northern Pennsylvania?
1: Things in northern Pennsylvania are great. We had our first real significant snowstorm of the year the other day, about five inches. And it's been very, very cold. But, you know, it's winter
0: um i am glad to hear that you finally have some snow we had uh, i don't know if this was the same in pennsylvania i suspect that it was but we had here in the chicago area we had a, a record maybe not broken but i think this is the longest we had gone without measurable snowfall in
1: something like 100 years
0: and then it finally yeah. happened
1: so yeah i read that yes it was the same here we had no snow in november december nothing and through most of january And I hate um, winter, so that's fine by me. Yeah,
0: I I totally agree with you. I'm definitely a warm weather person, not a huge fan of winter. But but my thinking, Larry, is uh, if you're going to have the cold, you might as well have some beautiful snow to blanket it. So I don't mind it when the snow comes.
1: My thinking is snow is the invention of Satan, and I'd rather not have any of it. (laughs) Okay. Well, this got serious real quick. Uh, (laughs) I hate it. I just hate it. Well, uh, thanks to uh,
0: all of our uh, viewers who are tuning into the live stream, and we'll probably have a few more um, trickle in as we get started, and I will be monitoring the uh, chat uh, window as we go. Um, <clears throat> if you'd like to uh, to join the chat, just hit subscribe. I think I uh, limited the chat to subscribers so that I would have uh, no spam um, bots hitting the chat, so just hit subscribe on the YouTube, and then you should be able to join the chat uh, from there. Um, but we'll take questions as we go from the chat. Uh, while we wait for some questions to trickle in, Larry, let's start with uh, with a question that I had from a listener. After our last conversation, uh, mm-hmm. a listener wrote to me. I answered him uh, with some of my thoughts over email, but I can share them here as well. But a listener wrote to me and said, um, hey, Zach, I am uh, in a Protestant denomination, but I'm thinking about becoming Catholic. And in particular, I'm attending, uh, when I can, an Anglican ordinariate parish near me um i would like to if i become catholic i would like to attend one of these because uh this parish in particular uh is really serious about liturgy and the folks there seem wonderful it seems like a great parish community to be a part of uh and i would love to do that uh but you had said you and larry had said on your last podcast um that you don't think traditionis casodis really has big implications for Uh, for the Eastern Rite churches and for the Anglican ordinariate. And he was asking, why is that? So why, Larry, do we think that um, what Pope Francis has done with the traditional Latin mass does not really have implications for um, what could happen to the Eastern churches and to the ordinariate?
1: Well, I mean, that's a complex question for, I mean, first off, I can't prognosticate anything, especially with regard to this papacy. Anything is possible. But with regard, let's start with the uh, Eastern Rite Catholics. I mean... Eastern Rite Catholics uh, are sort of in a zone, you know, protected that's all their own. Uh, There's just no way that Rome is going to move against Eastern Rite liturgies because uh, the preservation of those liturgies is the very reason why they've sort of agreed to, you know, be in union with Rome and not part of of orthodoxy. I, I think the chances that Rome is going to try and suppress Eastern Rite liturgies is less than zero. Uh, it would drive them right into the Orthodox fold and uh, there be a, there's absolutely no justification for it either because it doesn't impinge upon the Roman Rite in any way, shape or form. Now the Anglican usage right is considered you know, a form of the Roman Rite. and uh, it potentially, could come under you know the radar of Pope Francis and his desire to unify the Roman Rite, all under the Novus Ordo, all under a single Rite, but I think that also is highly unlikely. The chances aren't zero, but very, very unlikely. Uh, f- f- reason number one are the ecumenical implications of the ordinariate. Pope Francis is a very ecumenically-minded pope, and he understands that the ordinariate is a pathway into the church for many Protestants, and not just Anglicans, but any Protestant, and I think he's very, very open to that. Uh, also, the Anglican rite usage is extremely small. Um, your emailer is very fortunate, actually, that he has an uh, ordinary right church near him. Yeah, agreed. Big and, and I, as am I, you know, I have one very, very near to me and, and a great one that has its own standalone church. It's not a liturgy within, you know, a Novus Ordo parish where you have to sort of carve out your own time. No, I'm and we have a professional choir, everything, and so we're very fortunate here. But you know, there just aren't that many ordinary at parishes, they don't make that big of a splash. Um, although the bishop of the uh, North American Ordinariate, Bishop Stephen Lopes, was just named the head of the liturgy committee for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and he won that position by one vote, 121 to 120, I think. Um, and I, I think in some ways that was the American bishops wishing to send a signal to Rome that they value and prize the Ordinariate liturgy here in the United States very much. Finally, One of the problems with the traditional Latin Mass, and let's be honest here, is that around that Latin Mass had coalesced a certain number of traditionalists. I don't know the number, all right? It's certainly not a majority of them, but a a loud minority of people had coalesced around the traditional Latin Mass who were very, very critical of Vatican II, uh, the, the new mass, the mass of Paul VI and the Novus Ordo, uh, very, very critical of Pope Francis. There are traditionalists who openly published statements that they think Pope Francis is a heretic. Um, and, and so there's been an agitation in the traditional Latin mass movement that has fostered a certain church within a church, a sort of rem- remnant mentality uh, that was us against the pope. And I think Pope Francis had had enough of that agitation. And none, excuse me, none of that agitation exists in the ordinary. Maybe, a, I shouldn't say none, maybe a little. But it's a very, very insignificant thing. People who attend ordinariate parishes... Are not ideologically opposed to Vatican II or Pope right. Francis or any of that sort of stuff. So I, I think that your emailer is very safe, and I think the ordinary is very safe. I might have to eat my words six months from now, a year from now, but I just don't see any movement from Rome, hear any rumors from Rome, any gossip from Rome uh, that something on the ordinary it is in the offing. I just don't see it.
0: Yeah, you your comments just now, Larry, um, touched on. Most of what I had responded to this emailer with, um, I'll just add a couple of quick thoughts. One, to yeah. your point about the ordinariate being fundamentally different, the the people in the ordinariate, especially the priests who were Anglican priests and are now Catholic priests, yes. they became Catholic priests distinctively and very deliberately in an effort to enter into union with Rome. So yes. there's no, there's no sort of rebellious aspect of the move whatsoever. And I think that's why ordinariate is safe uh, as you mentioned Pope Francis is very ecumenically minded and in that sense the Anglican Ordinariate is an ecumenical um, yes. an ecumenical movement uh, of Rome and all the priests who have entered into it are saying we want to be in union with Rome that's why we are entering into this ordinary we, we want to keep our Anglican traditions but we are really intentional and deliberate about wanting to enter into communion with Rome uh, and then the second thing is um, as you are well aware uh, Larry the Vatican Second Vatican Council explicitly, affirmed the eastern churches so obviously i did not talk about the ordinary because it didn't exist by then um but uh in uh orient orientalium ecclesiarum it says and i'm just going to read from my email back to uh to this person who was and i'm not using this name because i just i don't know how much um how much privacy he uh wants to maintain but to the person who emailed me i said this is the quote from paragraph six of um orient orientalium ecclesiarum All members of the Eastern Rite should know and be convinced that they can and should always preserve the legitimate liturgical rite and their established way of life, and that these may not be altered except to obtain for themselves an organic improvement. All these then must be observed by the members of the Eastern Rites themselves. Besides, they should attain to an ever greater knowledge and a more exact use of them, and if in their regard they have fallen short owing to contingencies of times and persons, they should take steps to return to their ancestral traditions. So um, that's what the Second Vatican Council said about the Eastern Churches. Um, it it explicitly affirmed them, and um, and I think there there that sort of makes it so that there be legitimate I think jur- juridical questions about whether or not Pope Francis oh, could yeah.
1: impress them. Yeah, and uh, I think that's all true. A couple more points, and I think that's very true actually. About then, that's a good point. You know, that's ensconced right there in Vatican II, which Pope Francis you know is a big supporter of. But with regard to the ordinary, two two points that need to be made. One in favor of the fact that I think it's safe, and one that maybe it's not so safe. One is that if you look at the actual form and structure of the ordinary liturgy, unlike the traditional Latin Mass, i mean the ordinary liturgy is in the vernacular it's in, you know it's in the language of the people and yes worship is odd orientum away from the people but the prayers are said out loud with dialogical responses it's 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 very it's a kind of cross between a very traditional liturgy and the novus ordo and so there are elements of it that pope francis i think would have no problem with whatsoever you know that this yeah perfectly good liturgy, I think Pope Francis seems to have a problem with some of the structure of the traditional mm-hmm. Latin mass. It's, it's silent, and it's a language that nobody understands, and so on. But the other thing is this. We mentioned the ecumenical implications of the ordinariate, and you mentioned that, you know, the clergy have come in explicitly in order to be in union with Rome, and that's a very ecumenical gesture. But there are some liberal Catholics, progressive Catholics, who considered Pope Benedict's Creation of the ordinariate, an unecumenical gesture. Oh, really? Okay. They considered it to be a kind of slap in the face to the Anglican Church, because a lot of the people that wanted to move away from Anglicanism. Oh, into, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Right, and, yep. and into the Roman Catholic Church were essentially disgruntled Anglicans yep. that they they opposed the ordination of women. They certainly opposed the the consecration of female bishops. They opposed gay marriage and the blessing of same-sex unions you know, the whole nine yards, the whole liberal progressive path that the Church of England has gone down, and and so, you know, there are actually some Catholic bishops in the UK who really were not happy with Pope Benedict for in a sense, creating a, 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 a new atmosphere in which there might be a little antagonism between the Catholic Church and the mainstream Anglican Church. Now, I just mentioned that as a very, very small thing, but it has to be said that there is that school of thought out there that views views the ordinariate as, as a kind of slap at the Anglican Church. I don't think Pope Francis thinks that way, I don't think, but he hasn't said anything one way or the other. And with regard to Pope Francis, that's probably a good thing, that he hasn't said anything one way or the other, you know? Yeah,
0: well, we've we've talked about um, how Pope Francis really comes from the school of sort of Big Tent Catholicism, and I think, personally, that the Anglican Ordinariate is safe because of that Big Tent Catholicism, that this is—I uh, yes, think yes. Pope Francis views it as very much in the vein of Big Tent Catholicism, and so, the, so there's no real impulse to, um, to remove it. Yeah, um, no— Got a couple couple of questions and comments here, Larry. Let's go to the first of these. Um, commenter PX Smith says, uh, "Dr. Chap, with the huge issues with the Russian Orthodox, do you think this will help drive a greater chance of unity with uh, Ukrainian or Alexandrian?" Um, yeah. So the obviously the, um, the slightly more background on that for other listeners is uh, there is a um, not, not quite de facto schism in the Orthodox Church right now, but there um, there is a significant disagreement uh, between several uh, patriarchs in the Orthodox Church um, and the Russians, the Russian Orthodox are sort of uh, spearheading that division. Uh, And the question is, I think, does this help drive a greater chance of unity with the Ukrainian uh, or the
1: Alexandrian uh, rights? Uh, No, Uh, I think that it's an opportunity for Rome and Alexandria and Constantinople uh, to cooperate, more with one another, to have friendlier and more cordial relations with one another. Rome has always had better relations, uh, at least recently, with Constantinople and Alexandria than it has with Moscow. Uh, the, The trouble is, I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church, I think, is like one-third of the entire population of Orthodoxy in the world, if not more. So you're dealing with a huge population of the Orthodox in Russia, and and that segment of the the Orthodox Church is decidedly anti-Roman. And a lot of it has to do with a certain hubris, a certain arrogance. uh, You know, Moscow is the third Rome and all that kind of thing. Uh, And and nobody gets along with the Russians. I mean, the Greeks don't like the Russians, you know, and the Ukrainians certainly don't like the Russians. So there's a lot of disunity. There's a lot of acrimony there. So yeah, maybe you might think, well, maybe that acrimony will reach a boiling point, especially if Russia invades the Ukraine, for crying out loud, uh, and drive, you know, a, a union with Rome. Well, never... Never distrust the Holy Spirit. Anything is possible, and the Holy Spirit might use this moment to move some hearts, move some souls. But we can't underestimate the level of sort of anti-Roman sentiment that exists in all of orthodoxy and not just amongst the Russians. Uh, That anti-Roman sentiment has softened of late. Pope Francis has spoke primarily of the need in the light of modern secular culture and the common enemies and challenges that we face, he's spoken simply of a greater level of cooperation between the two churches. So I I think that he understands that full reunification or intercommunion is probably still not anywhere anywhere on the radar, Uh, not unless Rome gives up a lot of its own juridical claims, a lot of its own doctrinal claims. Um, I just don't see the rest of orthodoxy embracing Roman authority anytime soon.
0: I'm still studying this issue a lot, Dr. Chap, but, uh, a couple of things, um, that I have sort of questions that I would pose to you. The first is, uh, in your, in the course of your own, um, study of theology and of the church, do you have recommendations for reading on, um, uh, people who are looking to just get familiar with the sort of East West controversy? Uh, and the second question is you just mentioned, um, you know, the real barriers are Rome giving up its juridical claims and Rome giving up its doctrinal claims. Uh, which of those do you think are bigger? In my reading, it's really the juridical claims that are the bigger ones. Yeah. And the, yeah. the juridical claims drive what sort of um, tend to be w- what, what drives sort of a magnification of the doctrinal divergences, which are um, not as significant as they're often made out to be.
1: Yeah, the doctrinal divergences over things like um, differing ideas of original sin, differing ideas of Mary's sinlessness, right. you know, w- when that happens, I should right. say. you know And those two things are linked, by the way, uh, their notion of original sin and right. immaculate consent. So, yeah, th- but those can be negotiated. Those are not church-dividing issues. When I said doctrinal, I mean basically doctrines with regard to the papacy itself. Oh, gotcha. You know that when the the juridical doctrines, yeah, yeah. When the pope speaks ex cathedra, he speaks infallibly for the whole church. That the that the pope can enunciate new dogmas on his own authority and that kind of thing. That's a very hard pill for the Orthodox to swallow with their more synodal understanding of authority, and their more conciliar notion of authority. Quite frankly. but I think you're right. I think overall, it's the juridical aspect where Rome claims universal jurisdictional authority over the entirety of the Church, and you know, personally, if I were Pope, and thank God I'm not, uh, but if I were Pope, it would be something that I would consider doing it would be to, re- you know, renounce with regard to the Orthodox my jurisdictional claims over them. Um, in the interest of ecclesial unity, I mean, after all, the Orthodox have done fairly well. Thank you very much, all on their own without Roman assistance. Uh, so intercommunion wouldn't necessarily mean that Rome's got to go rushing in with the rule book and and its own canon law, um, because that would be extremely counterproductive up front. Um, the, the 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 Orthodox have their own fine way of doing things, and like. The West, it's got its dysfunctions too, but we have ours as well. At, in terms of uh, resources, you know, I'm I'm not actually a scholar on East-West relations; it's it's not my wheelhouse. Um, but I know that the Dominican theologian Aidan Nichols has written on East-West relations, um, and I think he is an important resource. Resource, and on the Orthodox side, there's a, a French. Um, uh, French theologian, Russian Orthodox, uh, Olivier Clément, who's written books on, you know, Rome, very sort of favorable towards the notion of Roman primacy with 800 million caveats. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Clément, C-L-E-M-E-N-T. Uh, he's written some interesting things on East-West relations as well. Okay, great. Those are uh, good suggestions.
0: I'm familiar with uh, with Aiden Nichols. Yeah. Um, and he has this... Uh, I forget what it's called. Uh, I'll see if I can find a link to it and put it in the comments. Um, But it's a wonderful primer on basically the Eastern churches. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, All right. Another question. Uh, This is from Bruno uh, Geddes, probably mispronouncing the last name. So apologies, Bruno. But Bruno asks, do you feel optimistic about the Synod on Synodality? Here in Switzerland, in my diocese, the results came in and about two thirds of the participants are basically material heretics. That uh, sadly is not surprising, those numbers to me, Larry, but are you optimistic about the synod on synodality, which I can barely say with a straight
1: face, honestly. (laughs) No, I am not uh, optimistic about the synod on synodality. Uh, Let's just be honest here. I mean, the thing is so ill-defined, it's not even funny. You can say, well, that's why we need a synod on synodality, because we need to define it better. No, I think you need a better set of working principles, theological principles up front, that specify quite clearly, here are the goals, here is the theology that undergirds our thinking, these are the principles that are going to guide us. What we've gotten instead, did you see what the American bishops put out? This, this list of, of buzzwords that were supposed to be happy inclusivity, diversity, open-mindedness, change. There wasn't one mention of Christ, the sacraments, holiness, conversion. You know nothing. So bad it, It's all these. Cor- You've seen what I'm talking about, right? All of these I have. corporate just buzzwords that you would get out of a human resources pamphlet, and it's just absurd that this is what's driving the conversation instead of profound Christological and ecclesiological theological principles. Um, synodality, in and of itself, is a good thing. It's it's related to the Second Vatican Council's call for what's called collegiality, which is just a fancy word for shared authority in the Church between the bishops and the papacy, because it is true that there has crept into the Catholic Church over the past 150 to 200 years an over-centralization of power uh, and authority in Rome. There's there's no reason why for example every bishop in the world has to be appointed by a Roman a Roman congregation. There's no reason for that. Historically in the history of the church local episcopacies and stuff chose uh, chose their own bishops. Now Rome can still maintain veto power, that's fine. And that would be a nice Roman way of guaranteeing orthodoxy in the church or whatever. Uh, but that's just one example of the hyper centralization in the papacy. And it has also contributed to what I call a, an oracular notion of the papacy, like an, like the Oracle of Delphi. That I like that, yeah. Every word that comes out of the Oracle of Delphi's mouth is supposedly a, you know, a channeled message from one of the gods, and you can get prophecy and so on. And there has crept into Catholicism over the past century. This notion that when something comes out of the Pope's mouth, it's 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 golden, baby. That's an oracle from God, and yet there are very strict limitations that the Church places on the magisterial authority of papal comments. Certainly, for example, statements from Pope Francis is off the cuff comments on airplane interviews airplanes. From, exactly, it's always you know, on
0: airplane, Larry. They,
1: he, I know, they mean nothing magisterially. Yeah. Nothing. They're just the private opinion of of a single Catholic man. You know Jorge Bergoglio on an airplane. That's all it is. But when he speaks as Pope, when he speaks as Pope Francis, you know, the first, in, a, in an official magisterial document, well, that that's a little bit different. But even magisterial documents have different levels and weights of authority. So, for example, an encyclical has a higher authority than an apostolic exhortation, and. Uh, France, Pope Francis seems to love apostolic exhortations more than encyclicals. I don't know. Although his encyclicals are good, I I think. Um, I think they're better than his exhortations. But all that being said, synodality is not a bad thing. Vatican II sort of called for it, and, and it sort of remained an unfinished business. Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict, but John Paul in particular, probably wanted to institute some more synodal process in the church but given all of the turmoil that was in the church all of the dissent and the theological cra- I lived through the silly season of the post conciliar church and let me tell you folks it was chaos it was craziness and and I think John Paul understood that at that moment in the church's history Uh, it needed a firm hand from Rome in order to write and study the ship. And this raises a good point. A friend of mine, Father Dozier, who's an Eastern, Eastern Rite Catholic priest, has pointed out, and he's a big fan of the synodal concept of the church and shared authority, but he has pointed out, you know, you can only have proper synodality in the church when you have a healthy church then it can work, then it can operate. When when there's sap in the tree, when there's blood in the veins, and there's life and faith in the church, then you can share and diffuse authority. But when it's kooky time, all right, when it's la-la land out there, you need a firm hand from Rome. Um, And I think that's why John Paul didn't go down the path of synodality. No, Pope Francis is making the adjudication, now's the time, we're going to talk about synodality again. My problem with it is, number one, I don't think it's the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's still the silly season in a lot of ways. Uh, But second, I'm not certain what Pope Francis is really up to here. I'm going to be blunt about it. How do you claim that you're in favor of a synodal church that's inclusive and diverse and open-minded, and then issue Tradiciones Custodes, which essentially smacks down an entire wing of the church— you know, the traditional Latin mass movement, all because there were a few malcontents in that movement who said some nasty things about Pope Francis. Uh, I hope he's not that thin-skinned, that he suppresses an entire legitimate movement within the Church, a movement that was instilled by Pope Benedict, his predecessor in Samorum Pontificum, that allowed a wider use of the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, How is that inclusive? How is that accompaniment? How is that, you know, promoting diversity? How is that going to the peripheries, you know, and, and reaching out to the marginalized people in the Church? Uh, Instead, it is a purely juridical act of raw papal authority to suppress an element of the church that the Pope simply doesn't like. Even though, and this is key, there are many, many, many bishops in the church who want the traditional Latin Mass in their parishes, who like the traditional Latin Mass movement, were supporters of the traditional Latin Mass movement. Okay, now these are bishops, and in a synodal church there is shared authority with bishops. But Pope Francis has essentially said, for example, say to the American Episcopacy, you need to put these people down. I mean, so much so, in fact, look, in the dubious answers from Custodis, there there's even a clause in there that says parishes may not advertise any longer in their parish bulletins the, trad- the times of traditional Latin Mass. Okay, fine. But notice what we have here. Maybe for the first time in the history of the church, you have a Roman congregation micromanaging what can go into a church bulletin all over the world on something as innocuous as announcing the time of a mass that is taking place. So this is hardly synodal. And so it raises a lot of fears in, in the minds of, of more conservative Catholics, such as myself, that maybe this is just a subterfuge. Maybe this is just a way of sneaking a German-style liberalization of the church in through the back door um, and then saying, hey, we went through a democratic process, a more synodal process, and here we are. People want X, Y, Z, and we're going to give them XYZ. I Y, Z. I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's, it's a deeply held suspicion from a lot of people. All I know is it smacks to me of something fake and, and something that is just a bit of a ruse. I'm not excited about it.
0: No, completely agree, Larry. Um, I think the, the, you know, we we talked before about, you know, one of our main complaints, main frustrations about traditionalist custodians is that it seems to be a rather sort of, uh, ham-fisted use of the church's, um, sometimes authoritarian tendencies. Um, I'm thinking back to our conversation from last March, maybe last May. Um, it's called the Constantinian bargain, um, and you and I talked about the church's Constantinian bargain and how often we get sort of too, the church gets too comfortable with, um, yeah. with state power, gets too cozy with state power, and one of the downsides of that is that the church ends up sort of mimicking the state rather than, right, rather than being something other. Uh, rather than being something that the state can can emulate and learn from, the church ends up sort of appropriating what the state has. I think the most the most discouraging thing to me as an American Catholic now is that I see in both the synod on synodality and on in the uh, so does I see some of the worst aspects of today's culture reflected. Um, and I say that yeah. uh, in the sense that uh, you know there's a there's a sort of a tendency to use author- authoritarian methods to achieve an end that uh is perhaps not prudent um yes while at the same time proclaiming oh we're actually all about listening and inclusivity yeah and so so in the chat here uh i uh, of our youtube i posted the, the usccb tweet that larry was just talking about a few minutes ago where it says you know here are here are our uh our seven things that we're thinking about for for this (laughs) innovative outlook inclusivity open-mindedness listening i saw someone post it repost this and i thought i thought this has to be a parody this cannot be an actual i thought it was
1: from the babylon bee or something like that (laughs) i I really did from the (laughs) onion for crying out loud i mean it's it's a parody of itself yeah
0: so it's while, like while it's like that, I went
1: uh, it's like I went to sleep and I woke up and it was 1975 all over yeah,
0: again. Precisely, precisely. So while they're saying that Supic, you know, they're saying we're we're going to be innovative and inclusive and open minded and listen and the company, uh, they're saying all those things and then Cardinal Supic in Chicago, one of the highest ranking American Cardinals, is yeah, is yeah. going beyond custodus and suppressing the Latin Mass in his diocese. And so so there's this um sort of crackdown, this uh we'll, we'll call it a sort of woke crackdown. Uh, accompanied with this completely hollow woke rhetoric of inclusivity and, open yeah, mind, yeah. and listening That's not
1: terrible. O- yeah not only is supich clamping down on the traditional latin mass in a way that goes beyond tradiciones, he's also clamping down on even certain things uh, among novus ordo parishes like there were priests that wanted to pray ad orientum and you know we're doing so but now they can no longer do that so not yeah, he's even reaching into the Novus Ordo parishes that are trying to do the Novus Ordo in more traditional ways and saying, no, you can't do that either. Uh, so it's very clear there's an ideology at work here that is that, yeah. is, not, that is not open, not inclusive, <laughs> not, not in any of those things at all. It's about closing down conversation rather than opening conversation. I mean, you got a church in Chicago like St. Canisius. Right, that, that was a Latin Mass parish that was busting at the seams. It had gorgeous liturgies, and there was no dissent against Vatican II or any of that nonsense going on there. But they now have to shut all that down, and 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 it's just a crying shame. Why? Why do they have to shut that down? Yeah. It, it, it it it's the most anti-synodal thing imaginable. So it, to me, it is a form of Catholic wokeism, and that that's this is what's kind of scary. Anybody that's ever worked in the corporate world, and I did briefly. Uh, I'm sorry <laughs> yeah exactly you know uh, apologies to anybody you know there condolences to anybody that's had to do that the, the fact is this i hate to kim it does smack of a certain corporate human resources gobbledygook speak Yeah. Okay. Uh, of that wants to foster a groupthink mentality that is Something that the top wants to impose, but doesn't dare do it, and it's just a diktat from on high. So you arrange the deck chairs in such a way that you give the appearance of democracy. You give the appearance of conversation and dialogue, but it's all micromanaged in advance to produce exactly the results that you want it to produce. Um, and, and so I have no hope that the synodal church, for example, is going to come out with a ringing endorsement of bringing back the traditional Latin mass in, in various places. No, it's it's probably going to be the opposite. And by the way, I'm not here to be a huge champion of the traditional Latin mass. I, I don't attend uh, a TLM parish or any of those sorts of things. And, uh so, you know, it's, it's not like I'm here as an apologist for that movement, but I just, I have so many friends that are in the movement and me means... You're just being
0: inclusive, Larry.
1: Yeah, I am being inclusive. You're just I'm Mr. Inclusive, right? <laughs> and I've been very critical of those negative elements in the traditionalist movement. In my yeah, blog, you, got, you know, space twenty two dot com. I've had numerous blog posts that has cost me subscribers, <laughs> right against the traditionalist excesses, you know, against Vatican II and, and calling Pope Francis a heretic. Yeah, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that most traditionalists are not that, and they're just ordinary men and women. And I'll say this too. I'm going to come back. I think one of the things that attracts a lot of people to the traditional Latin Mass parishes. Is also what attracts me to the ordinary parish that I attend. Mm-hmm. And it's the community. You know, the liturgy is almost uh, a kind of bonus. Oh, it's a beautiful liturgy, the Latin Mass, or the ordinary liturgy. It's a beautiful liturgy, ordinary liturgy. In point of fact, what, what families are looking for, parents are looking for their families, is a safe haven from the cultural septic tank that normal Catholic suburban parishes do not preserve them from okay, or Catholic schools don't preserve their children from the cultural septic tank in which we live. And so they seek out these intentional smaller communities of faith to help them raise their children. And and this is a severe blow, in my mind, against families, against parents, Catholic devoted parents who want to raise their children in the faith and uh, and it, and it's a huge slap down to them. And it, it's, um, I don't want this whole broadcast to sort of foray off into that. I, but I do have
0: yeah, I do have a couple other questions. Too, sure, go different ahead. Different topic. So yeah. um, real quick, uh, I told PX I would ask this. He just had said, is it a real quick question? Have you seen anything from your local diocese on the synod like listening sessions? I have not, but also I just moved to the Archdiocese of Chicago. It's probably happening here, uh, but I'm not super clued in. Uh, i'm also attending an eastern um church anyway so i'm even less sort of involved in the sort of communiques from the archdiocese but how about you larry anything in your diocese
1: well i'm kind of in a similar state i yeah. i you know attend an anglican ordinariate parish and we're not we're not a part of the diocese of scranton we're part of the ordinariate diocese yeah. which is a non-territorial diocese uh and so yeah we don't uh, we don't get a lot of the diocesan communications it might be going on in some parishes but i have to say i i haven't seen evidence of it yeah. i have uh, no 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 catholic i run into at the supermarket is right. talking it, it, it's not the water cooler buzz amongst not catholics yeah. not Zero. at all and isn't that indicative of something i mean seriously who's going to get excited about a synod on synodality where we get yeah. together and share our thoughts on inclusion right uh, people want to break from all that stuff. Yeah, I
0: mean, my my um back to the question of whether or not you're optimistic about the synod on synodality. I think there is less reason to be pessimistic than many are, precisely for that reason, Larry. People just aren't excited about it. And it's just it's it's I think it's gonna yeah. ultimately go nowhere. Uh, we've got a question here from Sean Dooley, who um, based on his question, he says, as a priest, so I'm guessing this is a father, Sean Dooley. He says, Thanks for your posts. I've been reading more from um B- Bouyer and Morin. That's that's Louis Bouye and, and Peter well, Moran. Yeah. Um, as a priest, I ask, what is an effective homily in the church today? What have been the pros and cons of homiletics since Vatican II? This is a great question that I'm totally unqualified to answer. Wow. I'm glad he directed this to you. What
1: do you think? Well, um, uh, I, I that's thats a great question. It's caught me a little bit off guard here. I can only say that I did spend 20 years as a college professor and four years before that as a prep school teacher. Uh, and, and so in, in some ways, it's, it's a similar sort of situation where you're trying, and I was a theology professor, so I'm trying to communicate the faith to a mixed group of people at various levels of spiritual discernment, and uh, you're trying to get them on fire uh, for Christ, for the church, and all those kinds of things. And the only thing that I can say is that I, in my own experience, the most effective homilies are very, very similar to the most effective classes that I taught, and that is to avoid stock phrases, stock answers to avoid. I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting catechetical in a homily, but if all homilies are are the dry bones repetition of catechism uh, statements or whatever, it's, it's not going to go very far because a lot of the people in the pews need to be re-evangelized more than they really need to be re-catechized. Uh, In other words, they need to know why the catechism is important in the first place (laughs) before you teach them the catechism. But beyond that, too, a lot of homilies don't focus on the catechism. They don't focus on even evangelizing. A lot of homilies just focus on very simplistic uh, forms of exegeting the Scripture passages for that day you know and and i think one of the mistakes that homilists make is trying to distill down scripture passages to leave the people with a little nugget a sort of takeaway uh, you know um, a, a bromide an aphorism something that they can sort of pin on their refrigerator door mentally and and say okay that's that's the moral of the story right i i, I it, because usually what happens in those kinds of homilies the moral ends up being very benign very banal very ordinary something that you would get from any church you know it's nice to be nice to the nice hallmark stuff yeah yeah exactly and so i'm sure father knows exactly what i'm talking about i think there's a fine line and one has to be careful not to offend but i think homilies these days need to be blunt and i i need i think a priest need to be intelligent, educated. They need to read. No, Nobody's going to be a good homilist unless they read. So father's reading Bouyer, Peter Moore, which sounds like he's a guy who likes books. He's a guy who likes theology, likes to read. So I'm sure his homilies <laughs> are great. But you know, nemo dot quo non hobbit, you cannot give what you do not have. And a priest who doesn't have theological education or insight isn't going to have insight into the culture. My best classes as a teacher took place when I deconstructed the culture, when I exposed the lies of our culture. And I think more homilies need to do that, to expose the lies that are inherent in our culture. In other words, we need to be about flipping the script, the flipping the narrative, the script that is in people's brains that are sitting out there in the pews. And that script is not getting flipped, that narrative is not getting changed the message of the gospel has got to be seen in all of its revolutionary, cutting-edge sharpness. Without being obnoxious or anything like that, I'm not talking fire and brimstone. I'm talking about getting to the essence of the gospel, getting to its core evangelical power and truth, and preaching it in season and out, and letting the chips fall where they may as you criticize the surrounding culture in the process. I think people are thirsty for that. I think I think a good homily too engages in mystagogy. I think people are also extremely thirsty for the spiritual, for the mystical. Uh, And the church has this rich, rich mystical tradition, monastic tradition, spiritual life tradition. And I've seen a lot of effective homilies uh, where the priest discusses the stages of the spiritual life, the stages of mysticism, the stages of supernatural experience. People wanna hear about the supernatural. So many homilies are so horizontalist today, focusing on love of neighbor and all that kind of stuff, which is great, but there's so little verticality in homilies these days, so little emphasis on the inbreaking of the supernatural into our lives. I heard a great homily a couple months ago by a priest that was talking about uh, you know, a dream that he had, and he believed that it was a communication from God, and it wasn't weird at all, it was very powerful. You know, in, in the New Testament, God speaks to people in dreams and, you know, and little things like that, letting people know that the supernatural is there in their lives on a day-to-day basis, I have found is extremely, extremely powerful uh, as a homiletic tool. I know that answer is kind of all over the map, but th- those are my suggestions.
0: Um, that's great, Larry. The only thing I'll add is someone who's not taught at the university level or ever given a homily in the liturgical setting, obviously. I can only speak from the perspective of someone in the pews um the homilies that i love uh, uh are are ones that really unpack the scriptures as well um
1: oh and, yeah you have and, to do that
0: yeah uh, all and, i'm and, saying
1: and, is don't remain there
0: yeah no totally i'm agreeing with you i'm agreeing I'm yeah just, i'm just adding that uh, that also that additional particular point of emphasis to unpack the richness of the scriptures because i think so often uh, catholics sit in the pews including myself uh and we we sit through all of the readings and uh are you know paying paying attention a little bit here and there, maybe tuning out entirely. Uh, and then having someone unpack all that for us is, is super helpful and powerful. And, and that is, that d- gets at some of the mystagogia that you're talking about, Larry. Oh yeah. Uh, L- like got,
1: lives well, of the saints too are good.
0: Yes. Oh, for sure. We've got, uh, we've got Bobby Mixon in the chat. He's got a question about Charles Taylor that we'll get to, but first I want to answer, or I want to get to this one from boss man 37 who says he's a seminarian. Um, he read your recent article on married clergy. Uh, and for, for listeners who are, tuning in um larry wrote a long a long reflection on um clerical celibacy uh calling for its abolition i'm just kidding larry uh <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna say wait a minute wait 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 you <laughs> wrote a long reflection explicitly saying i'm not calling for the the uh, abolition of it but this is a i think you called it an extended meditation um uh, it's all it was the, yeah Discipline of, um uh yeah. of cel- priestly celibacy and so uh, this seminarian says i'm a se- seminarian who considers himself well-adjusted I see my call to give up the married state as a cross, but one fashioned by God to build up his church. In your article, it sounds like seeing it as a cross, if it is indeed difficult for someone, is a dangerous conflict. Can you clarify? And, he, and then he says, I've got reading to do for class, uh, so I won't see the answer live, but uh, but he can tune in um, later and check it out. So what do you say to that question, Larry?
1: I, I think it's a great question, and I think it's one of the actual flaws in in, in my uh, in my blog post, which I edited and, and added onto in order to address that very point. My, my, I have a very good friend, I don't want to mention his name, uh, who's a Catholic journalist, and you would recognize his name, who uh, I'm friends with. And he wrote to me and says, yeah, Larry, I get your point that unless celibacy is a charism, That you have been gifted with by God, then you need to think twice about the priesthood. That's all well, true, and good. But it is also possible to lead a celibate life simply out of a holy obedience to the church and her discipline, even if you don't feel called to celibacy in particular. Um, And so I I added that caveat in there, so I think this seminarian is exactly right. Um, Celibacy, should only be embraced by a man who could actually see himself being a biological father as well, you know, a married man. Uh, A person who felt no capacity for marriage uh, should never become a priest either, a celibate priest either. You can't exercise spiritual fatherhood if you're not capable of regular fatherhood. And so the desire to get married um, is certainly healthy. And you may not be explicitly called to celibacy, You might not also be explicitly called to marriage, but one way or the other, you're simply in holy obedience, acquiescing to the church's rule here, and holiness can be found in that. My remarks were actually, my my harsher remarks were geared more towards my own experience in the seminary and, and meeting men, quite a few. Actually, who I didn't feel feel were called to celibacy, and I didn't feel they were called to marriage either. Uh, I don't think they had any charism of any particular note, and that they were just entering the priesthood because they they enjoyed its lifestyle perks. Yeah. And and uh, and and this was an altogether bad thing, as as we ended up seeing. All that being said, I want to I I do want to still reiterate one of this that central point in my blog that. Celibacy had better at some point become a charism. Even if you don't feel explicitly called to celibacy, in order to embrace it, even as a cross, you have got to eventually see it as a charism, the the grace for which God is giving you. Mm. Otherwise, your cross is simply going to be a white knuckled asceticism uh, that's going to potentially lead towards sublimated forms of carnal substitution right? And this is, this is why you see many alcoholic priests, many obese priests, not to mention, you know, porn-addicted priests and so on, okay? And, and that's not a majority of them, but, but that's there. So my, my argument is that we need to think about making celibacy optional in order for the charism, the true charism of celibacy to come forward with more force. Uh, to be a true charism in the church and not simply holy obedience, um, I don't want a priesthood ninety-five percent filled with men who are just being obedient. I want men who have actually embraced celibacy as a calling. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I know what the caveat that the seminarian is raising, and it's and it's a good one, but. At the end of the day, I, I think we need to really emphasize celibacy as a charism. Otherwise, you're going to run into trouble. Um,
0: I appreciate those comments. Hopefully, those are helpful to uh, to the commenter who is asking. Um, and oh, by was the way, saying...
1: and and God bless the young man, if he it's, is a I young was, man. Yeah, I was just about to say uh, that. For, for his gift, well. for his gifting of himself to the church.
0: Yeah, exactly. I was about to say the same exact thing, Larry. Um, I, your, your article caught me off guard, um, and I'm still sort of processing uh, your your... Meditations, as you call them. Uh, you know, it's not very, it's not very often that people in our in our theological circles um publish something like that that sort of challenges um challenges a sort of pre- presupposition um uh like that, uh in this case, clerical celibacy. But one example of I think what you're talking about is this um priest named Father Michael O'Lachlin, who uh hits a podcast called What God Is Not. Uh, it's called that because of the Eastern Church's emphasis on apophatic right. theology. Right. Um, He is an Eastern Rite Church. He's actually a technically Ruthenian Rite, um, but is a pastor of a Byzantine Catholic Church in Los Angeles. And as you know, Larry, um, the Eastern Churches do not—they uh, do not have the rule of clerical celibacy. No. Um, but Father Michael is not married, and he's not married because, as he was discerning this, he really did sort of discern this charism to celibacy. There you go. And so he said, "You know what? I am not required to be celibate." But I'm choosing to be celibate um, and uh, and i, had, I had, I've, I've sort of thought about that, that a lot since I first heard him say it a couple of years ago, but hearing your uh, hearing or reading your meditation makes me think about this in a different way. so um, let's go to now Bobby Mixa, who is in the chat. Um, Bobby says, "I know Larry has some problems with Charles Taylor.
1: Hang on, on a second. Problems. Oh, no worse. Oh geez, I'm- <laughs> Oh no.
0: Face timing uh, on, your, on your computer.
1: Yes, uh, my wife is FaceTiming me. My apologies, <laughs> but uh, she doesn't know I'm doing. I'm at a different location. She's someplace else, no and uh, she she's going to bed. <laughs> she's FaceTiming me. She doesn't know I'm doing this. But anyway, my apologies for that. So anyway, no go ahead. Go right, ahead so, with Bobby's question. So,
0: yeah, Bobby says uh, Bobby makes it here. I know Larry Chap has, or I know Larry has some problems with Charles Taylor. Tell me the problems. And that's it what are the problems of charles oh taylor?
1: well thanks for that robert for the uh <laughs> for the very I'm, I'm no expert on charles taylor uh i just think that he has some very very powerful insights into you know things like the buffered self the social imaginary uh the the rise of the disenchanted culture in which we live which has been perhaps replaced by some lesser enchantments and all that. And I think that's all, it's all brilliant stuff. I just wish that he had tied it all together into a more positive and prescriptive proposal of some kind at the end. I mean, his book is almost entirely, the secular age, a secular age, is almost entirely diagnostics, you know, a massive tome of diagnostics, which is great. We need that. And it's one of the most brilliant diagnostics, diagnostics out there. And everybody involved in that issue today has got to be conversant with Charles Taylor. Um, nonetheless, I, I think at the end it sort of short circuits, it sort of fizzles. I was, you know, when I was reading A Secular Age, I was hoping that the end he would say, and sort of, and here's my idea of what we need to do to uh, in, 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 ameliorate that. And I was hoping that he would draw in Christian resources in particular, uh, Catholic resources, and saying, you know, sort of along the lines of of, of a Christopher Dawson, i love or, dawson yeah, you exactly. know or, or even some i'm recently reading jean Danielou, jean daniel the jesuit uh resource month theologian daniel Lou's little tiny book called prayer is a political problem uh in you know and and dawson and Danielou are dealing with the same issue of um, you know how do we create a christian civilization when christianity is no longer a viable force in our society and and that's why you get, end up with rod Dreher's benedict option and things like that and and and, and so that's kind of what I was looking for a little bit more of out of Charles Taylor as well, which is, um, you know, as Elisdair McIntyre said, you know, we're waiting for a, a new St. Benedict uh, to come along, uh, albeit a very different one. And I, I was just hoping that there would have been more in that direction from Charles Taylor. So it's actually a very mild criticism uh, that I have of, of Taylor. He, he, he's, I, I just actually reread A Secular Age uh, uh and uh well actually i didn't reread the whole thing i i i uh, there i went back and reread large chunks of it let's put it that way so hang on a second hang just one second no worries bobby okay. hopefully
0: that answers the uh the question about uh larry's problems with charles taylor um, Larry, we are uh, almost out of time. I was shooting for this to be 45 minutes long. We're at 52 minutes uh, and counting. So, um, as we wrap up, how about, uh, how about this? How about you just mentioned some of the books that you've, uh, you've been reading, uh, Daniel Liu and, uh, rereading parts of a secular age, but, um, what, what else is on your, uh, what else is on your book stand at night? What things are you, uh, what spiritual readings do you have going on or theological examinations, et cetera?
1: This wonderful book here. Freedom, Truth, and Human Dignity, uh, which is uh, a great book on the, my next blog post is going to be on Dignitatis Humanae, the Vatican II document that dealt with religious freedom, and it was the most deeply controversial of all the conciliar, forget Sacrosoctum concilium, forget the liturgical renewal, forget De Verbum, forget all of that. The most controversial document of Vatican II was the Declaration on, on you know, religious freedom, dignitatis humanae. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the number one aspect of the Second Vatican Council that people like Archbishop Lefebvre, the SSPX, hmm. the Archdish, that they all reject. Uh, that this opened the door to religious relativism and indifferentism and so on. It's the it's one like that Athanasius Schneider today always cites. Oh yeah, exactly, and every single Bush bishop that trends extremely right wing uh, has big issues with dignitatis humanae, and so I think I think number one that they're wrong to be opposed to religious freedom, uh, <clears throat> especially in the manner in which dignitatis articulates it. So this book here, uh, it's. Uh, There's a huge section in here by David L. Schindler of the JP2 Institute in Washington and editor of Communio, the American, the English edition, American edition, I should say, of Communio. and Nicholas Healy Jr., who teaches at the Institute of in Washington, too, uh, some wonderful stuff in there where they go through the whole history of the development of Dignitatis Humanae, all of the debates, all of the ah. various schemas, yeah. everything that went down to give a full picture of the significance of this document and why it really is necessary to pay attention to. And the end of the book then has all of the various drafts pre-drafts you know the schemata as they're called for oh, wow. dignitatis humanae many of the interventions, some of the interesting interventions for example from carol voitiwa mm-hmm. later pope john paul ii uh, were very instrumental in 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 dignitatis so um that's what i'm doing and that's that's the main thing i'm reading and i highly recommend it as a book uh, to anyone um and i'm just Can hold
0: it up one more time what's the title of it
1: freedom truth and human dignity now, it's not for the faint of heart. Sure. I mean, it's it would not be something that an ordinary, non-theologically educated person would yeah, read. Yeah, this is right. the book by Daniel Liu, Prayer as a Political Problem. That is highly accessible to almost anyone. And I it's a very small book, as you can see. I think it's great. And I also just reread, I know you'll appreciate this, Diary of a Country Priest by George Bernanos. Right. Uh, I, 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 it's my spiritual discipline. I reread that book once every year. I just finished rereading it. It's great. Uh, the, uh, the Danielou uh, book,
0: the background image of that is The Angelus by Jean-Francois Millet. Uh, beautiful little portrait. That's only a portion of it. That's the woman praying in the field. Her husband is alongside her, in the rest of the photograph. And you see the church, the French church spire in the background. Yes. it's one of one of my favorite paintings, uh, and that actually graces the, uh, the the sort of front room of our home right now, right above where the piano will go when we when we get that in here. So
1: very good. Um, and my apologies for all the Facetime interruptions. No, no, where's it all? No where's it all?
0: Um, <laughs> so this is what I've got up next on the docket, Larry. Uh, little von Balthasar, the Christian and Anxiety. Oh um, yes. Yes, so I'll have to ask you about that one. Maybe we can talk about it when I finish it. I'm also rereading um, Merton's Seven Story Mountain, so that's what's uh, that's what's my spiritual reading
1: these days. That's a that's a great book. Both are yeah. great books.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Really appreciated engaging uh, with all the questions. Um, let us know if there are additional questions that you wanted answered but we didn't get to. You can send me a note, Zach at CredalPodcast dot com. Zach just Z A C, no H. Zach at CredalPodcast dot com. Um, by the way, uh, Father Sean, in the chat, uh, Larry just says, Diary of a Country Priest. Wow. Reading it now. Yeah, Hell, um, Yes, yes. Father Sean, we we did a podcast on this um, two, maybe three months ago now, uh, Larry and I, all about Diary of a Country Priest. Um, it's probably my favorite podcast we've ever done, Larry. Uh, really enjoyed yeah, yeah. that with you and all the, because I read that book, um, Father Sean, I read that book four four months ago or so um and uh, i describe it as a life-changing book and it is definitely in my top five and and
1: i wish there were more pod podcasts of these positive things you know in the church because yeah. we we're we're constantly i'm guilty as the next person right talking about all the topical stuff all the controversy that's swirling around but there's such great beauty in the church yeah, there
0: really is. We should do another podcast like that, Larry. we just take a book and dissect it. So,
1: Oh, absolutely. That's a good
0: idea. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, to my listeners, like I said, shoot me a note. Zach, Z-A-C, at credopodcast.com. If there's a question that you wanted us to get to but we were not able to, we'd love to hear from you, love hearing from listeners, um, and we'll get back to you whenever I can. Or I'll forward the question on to Larry if it is one that he can better answer, which would be most of them. Uh, and, uh, and stay tuned. Hit subscribe on this channel if you want to be notified when we do this again, because we will do it again. And if you don't already know, Larry does a monthly show with me on, uh, on this podcast. So as always, Larry, pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for doing this. You too, Zach. Good talking to you. All right. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, God bless you.